Well, thanks, Rafe, um, for praying for us, for, um, yeah, saying those things. I think it's, yeah, only by God's grace that any of those things could be said of me and of Lindsay and our family. And um, it has been a privilege uh, to serve as an elder here at this church for the past several years. I've loved getting to know you, getting to pray for you, getting to walk alongside many of you, and both in good things and in, and in difficult things. Um, it's just been uh, humbling and, uh, and honoring at the same time. And I'm excited for this church and the future of it. I know uh, there's many highly qualified men, probably more qualified and better suited for the role of elder that are stepping up and will be stepping into that role in the near future. And so I'm excited uh, just for our church and where God is leading us. Uh, you've already met uh, Lindsay and our daughter Ellie, at least briefly. And uh, so that's a picture of our family. She, Ellie is 15 months old. Lindsay and I have been married for about three and a half years. And our second daughter is on the way, due in August, and so we're excited for our growing family and all that God has for us. Like Rafe mentioned, um, we both work full-time with Bridges International, International Student Ministry here in the city. And I, one of my favorite things about it is just like getting to meet people from different cultures, from different perspectives around the world that has really opened my eyes and helped me to understand Jesus in a deeper, truer sense and what it looks like and what it means to follow him. And so that's one of the things I love about our ministry. And it's one of the things I love about our church, that we all come from different perspectives, uh, from different backgrounds, and that helps us to grow more deeper in Jesus. Uh, and so, I, uh, yeah, it's just been a privilege overall in both all cases. Today we're in uh, John 12, uh, which can be found on page 899 in the House Bible. So if you have a House Bible, you can turn to page 899. If you need one, um, there's still some in the back, uh, which there might be a few ushers that will be able to hand them out to you. Uh, but page 89, John chapter 12. Let me pray before we dig into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us that we can freely come together to read and to learn from your word, to hear from you. God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would your presence be more real to us today. God, would you teach us what you want us to know? Would you change us to make us more like you? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the authors of the Old Testament wrote about, I can't remember exactly, but five, at least five books, maybe more, uh, was Moses. Moses was one of the most well-known prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, but before he was a prophet, he was just like many of us. Uh, he struggled with the same things we struggle with. He had the same questions and concerns in life. He dealt with the same problems. He was born a Hebrew but raised by Egyptians, so he, you can imagine the type of identity issues that come with that. He was, uh, had anger issues, kind of was often stirred up in, in anger and different things. Actually ended up killing an Egyptian uh, because he was witnessing a, a dispute between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. And instead of actually facing his sin, facing his problems, he runs away. Uh, he is, tries to escape from his sin, so he has struggles with escapism. In this other country called Midian, he begins to build a life for himself. He finds a wife, starts having kids, has a pretty solid, uh, not necessarily financially strong, but steady career as a shepherd. There's always need for more shepherds uh, in ancient Israel and Midian. Uh, but he has confidence issues. Right, God encounters him. He tells him how he wants to use him, but Moses thinks of every possible explanation or reason why God shouldn't or couldn't use him. So he struggles with his confidence. 
And then Moses has an encounter with God that completely transforms him forever. God reveals himself to Moses as a burning bush. He, God gives himself the name, I am. He tells Moses, I am who I am. And this is the single most significant moment in Moses' life. His life would never be the same. From that moment on, as he walked with God, he was filled with God's power, with God's wisdom, with God's direction. He led the people out of the Israelites out of Egypt, performing miracles and exhibiting his wisdom through the desert to the promised land. All of his issues, all of his struggles with confidence, with his identity, with uh, anger, all began to melt away as they found their solution in Christ, in God. He became one of the most famous prophets of the Old Testament. Many people, up until the time of Jesus, they equated following God with following Moses. His life was completely transformed, and God was able to use him in miraculous and powerful ways. Have you ever encountered Jesus in this way? Have you ever really been transformed by Christ? Maybe you have, but maybe it was a long time ago that you can even barely remember the difference that Christ made in your life. So I think many of us, we struggle with this feeling that we haven't really been changed, that we're not really growing in our faith. I know for me personally, often when I talk about the work that God has done in my life with people, it's often something that's a distant past. It's not a present reality. I think this is often because we don't have an understanding of what it really means for Jesus to be our Lord. We've been in a sermon series the past almost two months, finishing next week, uh, studying the seven I am statements of Jesus. And these aren't just information. These aren't just clever things that Jesus came up with to describe himself. Jesus does everything with intentionality. He wasn't just sitting around thinking, oh, well, how do I, how do I want to portray myself today? Well, there's light. There's lots of light outside. People, everybody knows what light is. Maybe I'll use that. Okay, maybe, maybe I'll be the light of the world. You know, that sounds... That sounds pretty good. You know, I like that. No, Jesus is very intentional in saying all these things. That these are not just information. They're not just meant to comfort us. They're actually meant to transform us as we encounter Christ through these I am statements. And with each of these statements, connecting them all, is an under, there's an underlying statement that Jesus is making about himself. See, in each of these things, when Jesus says, I am, his audience is inevitably connecting it to what God said about himself when he called himself, I am. So Jesus is not just claiming to be the light of the world. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be our Messiah. He's claiming to be our Lord. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the week before Easter for us. And while uh, commonly the story that we're looking at today is known as the triumphal entry or the victorious entry, Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem before his death. And Jesus, in this story, is not making a literal I am statement, but it's a part of this series because the statement he's making about himself is just as strong and just as clear. Before we read our passage, a little bit more context of what's happening back then. Again, like it's the week before Easter for us, it's the week before Passover for the Jewish people. Passover is the holiday where they celebrated being freed from slavery in Egypt through Moses. Jesus is visiting his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Uh, and he had previously raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine, or maybe you know personally from experience, that if you've ever raised somebody from the dead, that's probably the height of your popularity, right? If people hear that you've raised somebody from the dead, you're, you're probably more famous, more popular, more powerful than you'll ever be. 
that everybody wants to get a glimpse of you, gets to hear from you if you've raised somebody from the dead. The Pharisees and religious leaders have heard Jesus teach and heard him perform miracles many times, but they definitely don't like him. In fact, they're actively seeking to find a way to kill him. And not just Jesus, but Lazarus also because of the influence that he's had. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are flocking to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Maybe many people question if Jesus would even come because of the threats against his life. But Jesus does. He comes into the city and he does so intentionally. Not by coincidence, not by accident, but the way he comes into the city, he's making a statement about himself. He's declaring himself to be Messiah and Lord of all things. And he's also coming into the statement coming into Jerusalem to initiate and lead to his death. He knows that the Pharisees are seeking to kill him, and he knows his plan that he has for his own death. And so we jump into the story, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, just try to picture what is happening, right? Okay, so the city of Jerusalem was normally approximately about 100,000 people. You know, pretty small, not really something that we would maybe even consider a city even today. But it, during the time of Passover, it swelled to, it could have swelled to at least 3 million people, right? That all these people were coming to Jerusalem for this special holiday, and they were gathering together. And again, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Everybody wants to hear from him. Everybody wants to, everybody wants to get a glimpse from him. So the crowd comes out, hearing that Jesus is coming, wanting to see him. And almost instinctively, in unison, they're crying out, worshiping Jesus as their king and as their Lord. It's kind of maybe difficult for, picture, for us to picture today, so I want to show you a picture of what I imagine it looking like. <clears throat> so this is, if you don't know, this is 2016, the Cubs victory parade. I was just a couple blocks that way in the picture. Uh, it was, I'm not a Cubs fan by birth, but uh, it's, it was incredible and really fun. Uh, you know, it's interesting that the Cubs, for the Cubs and Cubs fans, they waited about 100 years to see victory. But the people of Israel, at the time of Passover, they've been waiting for thousands and thousands of years for the coming Messiah. That ever since Adam and Eve, ever since the first sin, there had been a prophecy about this one that would come to save them. And so you can imagine that the crowd is just swelling, everybody trying to get closer and get a glimpse of Jesus. And they're all waving these palm branches, right? That's kind of weird. We don't really do that anymore. But I think we have an equivalent in our culture, too, in the next image. Everybody has their cell phone. Right? <laughs> When we see something that's worth celebrating, when we see something that's worth worshiping, everybody gets out their phone because they want to get a better glimpse. They want to get a lasting image of it. And so instead of waving palm branches, we wave our cell phones. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> I think the significance of this passage, of the story of this imagery is often lost on us, of what it really means for Jesus to be our Lord. By entering the city in the way that he does, Jesus is making a definitive statement about who he is. He's clearly saying that he is Lord and King. The palm branches actually symbolize victory and power. 
This is one of the few stories that appears in all four of the Gospels, in all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're studying it mainly in John today, but in Luke, it's also describing that people take off their cloaks, take off their outer robes, and they're laying them at the feet of Jesus, which was a sign of deference and honor, typically reserved only for royalty. So people are doing this. They're laying their cloaks that they typically would only do for a king or an emperor at Jesus' feet. People are crying out and worshiping Jesus as their king and Lord, and he doesn't stop them, meaning he approves. He rides in like a king. See, back then, a king would come, and they would send messengers into the city, and they would bring people out of the city to welcome the king in. Typically, the king would be returning from battle or some great victory, and he'd be riding on a horse, symbolizing his power and his strength and the victory that he had. But Jesus chooses to ride on a donkey. You see, he is establishing himself as king, but he is doing so as a humble king, as a servant king, as a selfless king. But what does this really mean for us today? What does it really mean for Jesus to be our Lord? I think we often think and talk about Jesus in the Western church as our savior, which is right and good and true. He definitely is our savior, but we miss out on the fullness of Christ and his reign as king if we only know him as our Savior. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus is referred to as Savior about a couple dozen times. You know, pretty good. You can learn a lot about Jesus being our Savior and what that means and the implications of our life from all those references. But throughout all the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as our Lord over 700 times. That there's far more that we need to learn about Jesus being our Lord than just our Savior. Often the Greek word kyrios Uh, which I'm probably saying wrong, uh, is used to describe Jesus as Lord, and it literally means one who has supreme authority. Supreme authority, that he is above and beyond all other authorities, greater than anyone else. Often Lord is also equated with God, Messiah, Master, or King. I think some of those things are hard for us to understand because we don't necessarily have those in our context in our culture today. But Lindsay and I, we are the masters of our house, right? We are the master of our children. As, my, as, as a father, part of my responsibility to my daughters is to be their master, to set the boundaries for them, to give them their identities as my, as my daughter, to protect and guard them, uh, to instruct them in the ways that they should go. Uh, I, I love Star Wars, and I was trying to figure out a Star Wars example to use and didn't have one, and I'd given up, and then yesterday it came to me, but... In all the Star Wars movies, and all those Star Wars books, there's always a master and apprentice. See, the apprentice, he devotes himself to their master. He follows them everywhere, for they instruct them in how to use the force, instructing them in the ways of good and evil. They learn from them. They submit to their decisions and guidance. They do everything the master tells them to do. But in the movies, uh, Obi-Wan is Anakin's master, Anakin Skywalker, And Anakin has a feeling, he has a sense that he knows better than Obi-Wan. That there's more power out there for for him to be had than just by following Obi-Wan. That he has another way of of doing things that are fair and just and right. And so he ends up turning away from Obi-Wan, not submitting to his right master. Thinking he's seeking freedom and greater power, but he's actually enslaving himself to something else. I think it's true for us too. We have such a negative connotation of, of a Lord, of a master over our lives. We don't want anybody else to be our Lord or our master. But if we're not submitting to Jesus as our Lord, ultimately, we'll end up submitting to something else. 
You know, we live in the age of self-determination. Our culture, our world tells us, you have the right to choose whoever you want to be. You have the right to create your own identity. You are the Lord of your own lives and nobody else can tell you what to do. But church, that is a lie. Because if we're not fully submitting ourselves to Christ, ultimately, we're giving authority and submitting to something else. Whether it's our culture, whether it's our fleshly desires, our sin, our need for to be liked or to be approved of, our own success, our own job, ultimately, we're submitting to something else. And often even worse, even if we recognize that we need to submit to Jesus as our Lord, we often see that as just following a bunch of rules. I know that from my own experience. I grew up going to church. I grew up, I knew all the rules. I knew that as long as I followed the rules, I was good to go. Nothing else needed to change. All that Jesus wanted from me was to not get drunk, to not look at pornography, to not gossip about other people, to not lie, cheat, or steal. All he wanted me to do was to just give a little money to church, to serve, to pray for other people, to read my Bible. Nothing else needed to change. But there was this emptiness that was just growing inside me that I thought I was following Jesus, I thought I was following God, but it, it was just all emptiness, it was all worthless because I was still putting my trust and building my identity not on Jesus, but on my ability to follow the rules, on my ability to maintain control of my own life and other people's perceptions of me. I feel like that's probably one of my greatest weaknesses, even today, is the struggle that I have that I want to control what other people think of me, I want to control what other people say about me, I want to control the perception they have of me. And it was crushing me. Because Jesus, as our Lord, isn't just following a bunch of rules, because if it is, then we're still in control. Following Jesus is living with wild abandon to him. Of casting aside our wants, our desires, and pursuing him first. And Jesus, in Jesus, we find true freedom that he sets us free from worrying about what other people are thinking of us, of worrying about if we have the right confidence or the right attitude, of worrying about meeting our own needs, that Jesus frees us from that and he gives us a new identity in him as he is our Lord. At work, uh, before I started working with international students in ministry, I worked in the food industry as a cook. I loved it, it was a lot of fun, but it was incredibly stressful. And it's a really dark place. If you've ever worked as a server or as a, as a cook, there's just the, straight, the stress and the heat and the pressure that people are put under. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to see Jesus in the midst of it. But I became known as a guy that didn't swear, which was great. I loved it. Okay, you know, like, I'm a guy that doesn't swear, so you know that I'm a little bit better than you, right? <laughs> you know that I'm a little bit nicer. I'm a better person. And so that's great. Uh, that can totally be my identity there. I'm fine with that. But I was continually ignoring or pushing away opportunities I had to talk about Jesus. I was still controlling my identity and my perception of, of that people had of me. And so I kind of felt guilty about it. I was like, ah, God, I know, like, really, you do want me to talk about you with people. They don't need to look to me as their example. What they need is Jesus. So, okay, I, you know, next time it comes up, I guess I'll do it uh, just to get the guilt off my back. And it was around the same time, uh, I was talking with a friend from work, uh, and he was, the opportunity kind of naturally came up with Easter coming up and going to church. And so we began to talk more about my faith and the reality of what it means to follow Jesus and what Easter is all about. And instead 
of it ruining our relationship, which was what I feared, it actually deepened and strengthened our relationship. We had a more fuller relationship and friendship going forward because we were able to talk about and dive into those things. I think often the thing that we're, we fear submitting to Jesus, to Jesus as Lord, that he ultimately wants to use that to deepen our faith, to deepen our walk with him. We try so hard to maintain control of our lives, to maintain control of the image that we have out there for other people to see, but that what we really need is to submit to the Lordship of Christ, to be set free from those things, and to fully surrender to him. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul, famous pastor and theologian. It says, The irony of the New Testament Lordship is that only in slavery to Christ can a man discover authentic freedom. That it's only when we fully submit to ourselves to Christ that we really are free. Because if we're not submitting to Christ, we're just submitting to all these other things. Because Jesus is Lord over everything. He's Lord over everything. He owns it all. He's even Lord over our own sin. That we can't try to escape our sin like Moses. That he did not shy away from escaping, trying to run away from our sin, but he dealt with it. He entered the city with, in Jerusalem with intentionality, with the intention of healing our brokenness, of covering our shin through his death. He provides us. He protects for us. To deal with our sin, we need the cross. We need his Holy Spirit. We need the community around us. If we're not confessing to Christ, if we're not being exposed to him and his word, if we're not confessing in community our brokenness, our failures to establish Jesus as our Lord, then ultimately we're not going to grow. We're not going to see his power or the abundant life that he promised for us. Those things are all instruments of his healing and change. And by God's grace, we don't have to figure it out alone. Our culture tells us again that you, you are in charge of deciding who you are. <laughs> I'm not wise enough to do that. If you ask my wife, I barely even know like what I'm feeling half the time when I'm feeling upset or sad or something. It's like, I can't even identify that. How am I supposed to know who I am? But Jesus gives us an identity as he is our Lord. And we are his servants, his children. This is such a foundational truth for us in our faith. Yet we so often miss or forget the Lordship of Christ. I have an image that kind of represents this for me. It's maybe a little bit disturbing for those that are a little squeamish, but we'll put it up there anyways. Um, <laughs> so this is a couple days ago, actually. Ellie has been learning how to, how to feed herself, how to use forks and spoons. And part of my responsibility as, as her father, part of my responsibility as her Lord is to teach her how to do that. Right? So I show her, okay, this is how you scoop it. I help her eat. I make sure she's had enough. But ultimately, she wants to do things her own way. She doesn't want to listen to me. She wants to do things her own way, and she makes a mess of it. You know, I don't know how well you can see it, but there's yogurt everywhere, over a water bottle, over the table, all over her. We ultimately do the same thing. Even if we've already given Jesus control over lives, slowly we try to take it back, and we just continually make a mess of things. And this isn't a question of our faith. We can sincerely love Jesus. We can sincerely know him for who he is. Yet we still have this struggle. I have no doubt that Ellie knows that I'm her father. She says it all the time. She says dada all the time. She knows I'm her father. She knows I love her. I tell her as often as I can that I love her. She knows those things to be true. And yet she still wants to control things for herself. It's so easy for us to miss the point and the practice of Jesus' lordship. 
Even the disciples missed it. Even the disciples, the people that were closest with him, the people that saw him in action all the time, that heard everything he taught, even they missed it. In John 12, verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been done, written about him and had been done to him. They didn't even know what they were seeing. They didn't even know what they were participating in, in part of the triumphal entry. They didn't even see Jesus as Lord. And the crowd as a whole, many of them, just a few days later, would form a crowd again. Instead of worshiping Jesus and praising him as Lord and King, they'd be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They turn on Jesus so quickly. And we can turn on Jesus just as quickly. We have no problem coming here on a Sunday morning or in our quiet time or in our small group and proclaiming, yes, Jesus is Lord of my life. But when it comes to our job, our possessions, our free time, our relationships, the way we see entertainment, we want nothing to do with him. I love this quote from Elizabeth Elliot from her book, The Passion of Purity. It says, Until the will and affections are brought under the authority of Christ, we've not begun to understand, let alone accept his lordship. Until the will and affections are brought under the authority of Christ. What is that saying? That is saying, until the way that we make decisions, until the things that we desire change, until those things are brought under the authority of Christ, we're missing it. It's not about following a bunch of rules. It's about submitting our will, submitting our decisions, to submitting our desires, our wants to him. Think about the course of this week. How many decisions did you make about your family, about your career, about the way you spend your free time, about the things that you consume for entertainment? How many of those did you even think of bringing Christ into? This is the most common objections I've seen to Christianity today. The reason that people leave the church is because they don't see a difference in the lives of believers. That they don't see power, that they don't see change. I think part of that is if we're really honest, that we don't really want Jesus to change our lives. We don't really want Jesus to be the supreme authority of our lives, just like Moses, who tried to come up with every excuse he could think of why he couldn't be used by God. Like, like, just like Ellie, who wants to do things her own way. Just like me, trying to control the image I have of other people seeing me and their perception of me. We need to let go of those things. If we really want to establish Jesus as our Lord, if we really want to find the true freedom that comes from him, we need to admit and identify what we are giving our authority to, right? Because if we're not submitting to Jesus, we're ultimately submitting to and giving authority to something else. So what are those things? For me, some of these questions that are going to be put up on the screen have been really helpful in just thinking through and praying through these things. First one, where do I find meaning in my life, right? Are we ultimately finding meaning in our lives from Jesus or are we finding it from our career, from our success, from our relationships? What occupies most of my thought, thoughts or time? And, you know, if literally part of being a servant or falling under, putting ourselves under a Lord or a master is like devoting the time and being with them and thinking about those things. Is it money or lack of money? What do I fear losing? Fears often uh, shows our attachment to something that we feel like we need, 
that we can't live without. But if Jesus is our Lord, then there is no fear. Because he ultimately is one providing and guiding and leading us. Where am I finding my identity? Am I placing my identity in these other things or am I finding my identity in Jesus? We need to be bringing these things before Christ, establishing him as Lord of our lives. Our lives are far too short and Jesus is far too important to live any other way. Our lives are far too short and Jesus is far too important to not be fully submitted and devoted to him. But the hope is that Jesus does not leave us on our own to figure these things out for ourselves. That he intervenes on our behalf. That he goes to the cross and dies for us so that we can know this. So that we can have access to him as our Lord and our Savior. Not only that, but 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That Jesus opens a window to see his mind, to see all the glory, all the wisdom, everything in there. That we can know him, that we can know his thoughts through his word, through his Holy Spirit. That's not up to us in our own capacity to figure these things out, but he gives us access to his mind. He also gives us access to his spirit. This powerful spirit that works in us was promised to us in Romans 8 and 9. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're not submitting to these other things, but in the spirit, you're submitting to Christ. But in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We're given this spirit. We belong to Jesus. He has purchased us on the cross. We belong to the church. He's called us to be a part of this community. He gives us this community to be a resource, to be help when we need it. To lead and guide each other towards Jesus, to submit to him more fully. One of the most confusing aspects, I think, for us is Jesus Lord, of Jesus' lordship is the struggle of it, right? If Jesus really is Lord, why am I always tempted to take back control of my life? If Jesus is really Lord, not just of me, but of the whole world, of everything in it, then why last weekend were there 31 shootings across the city of Chicago? Why do we live in such brokenness? Why are things not what they should be according to the Bible? Why does it feel like, why does it seem Jesus isn't reigning as Lord? Because our hope is, and the truth is, that Christ came, established his kingdom here on earth, but not in its fullness. That the triumphal entry points towards Jesus' authority, that his reign as king and Lord, but we haven't fully experienced it yet. His death and resurrection secures it for all eternity, that there is no question what the end will be. That Jesus will eventually reign in his full lordship, and place all things under himself. That all of the brokenness, all the hurt, all the pain, everything that we see that goes against Christ, all that will be done away with. And there's hope in that. At the triumphal entry, Jesus is declaring that he's not only just Lord over us and other things, but he's Lord even of his own death. And he's dictating the terms of his death to the ones that want to kill him. The Pharisees, remember, were already seeking to kill Jesus. They're already planning. They're already plotting. They're already trying to find a way. Because of the, so many people were turning to him. So it would have been really easy and totally excusable for Jesus to say, well, I'm just not going to go. Right? I'm, it's, it's more important that I stay alive, that I stay with you, continue to teach you and lead you. But he goes because of his plan and his purpose for his death. 
He knows what's going to happen. He is fully in control. John 12, 23 through 26. And Jesus answered them, some Greek followers that were visiting, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here Jesus is using the analogy of a grain that falls and must die to bear fruit uh, to represent his own death. That in order for him to bear fruit in us, that he must ultimately die. That even though he is the king of kings and lord of lords, even though he created the whole world and sustains it by the word of his power, even though he is the firstborn of all creation, even though the glorious riches and access to heaven all are his, even though every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at the name of Jesus that he is lord of all, that he gives that up all. He gives all of it up for us. Do we understand, do we see how much Jesus sacrificed for us? Our lives are far too short and Jesus is far too important to not live fully devoted to him. He hangs on the cross and declares, it is finished. He has won complete victory. Our futures are secure. His lordship will one day fully be completed. It's done. As I've been studying this passage, I've just been struck by that reality the contrast of the world that we live in now to the future world of heaven where Jesus will fully reign, and specifically seeing the contrast between the triumphal entry and Jesus' second coming as described in Revelations. So if we look at those two things side by side, we see a lot of similarities, we see a lot of differences. That just as Jesus came into Jerusalem and a crowd gathered waiting palm branches, so the branches make another appearance in Revelations chapter 7. That they're celebrating his victory over death and sin. That just as Jesus is worshipped in the triumphal entry, so Jesus will be worshipped for all eternity in heaven. In Revelations 15, the crowd is gathered for the feast of Passover here in our story today, but one day we will gather again as a great multitude worshipping him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He comes now as a humble, selfless servant king. But in Revelations 19, he's described as a mighty conquering king, riding on a white horse, coming to bring victory and healing and power. We'll see the fullness of Jesus' power and authority one day. People are spreading their cloaks down on the ground for Jesus in the story today. But in the future, we'll take our crowns, as described in Revelations 4. We'll take our crowns, the things we hold most valuable, the things that we hold on to so dearly that we think give us power, give us authority in our own lives, and we'll lay them at the feet of Jesus. Well, if one day, church, the hope is that Jesus will fully reign that will experience his full power and authority. My prayer for us is that we wouldn't give up in the struggle, that we would ultimately see Jesus as supremely authoritative in our lives and ultimately worth it, worth giving everything for. God, my prayer, church, my prayer is that we continually surrender more and more to the lordship of Christ until that final day when he fully establishes his reign forever. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you do not leave us alone to figure these things out for ourselves, that you do not uh, withhold these things from us, but you give us access to you through your spirit, 
through your word, through this community. God, we thank you that you reign as Lord over us. That ultimately we can find true freedom in your lordship and submitting to you. God, we pray that you would empower us, enable us to fully submit to you, to experience your love and your abundance in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.